Welcome to the Stories We Tell, a podcast about the way we read movies. This season, we're going to look at stories and narratives in movies and TV shows and ask two really important questions. What's the truth behind the story being told? And how does that story operate in our own cultural narrative? If you missed the introduction, here's a recap. The way this podcast works is that I will set up a hypothesis about a really well-known story that we think we understand. Then, using certain theoretical discourses, I'll suggest potential meanings and themes that really rethink and reframe the story that's being told in that movie in the hopes that you'll watch it and continue the conversation after the podcast is over. Today's story is about Frankenstein. Frankenstein is a very, very well-known text, right? It's a novel. There's been several different movie versions and parody versions. We think we really understand what's going on in Frankenstein. However, I have some suggestions that I think if we rethink, we can see a deeper meaning about behavior, sexuality, religion, government control, and I could go on, and I will. But first, let me give you some context about why it's important to investigate stories we think we know so well. Joan Didion once wrote, We tell ourselves stories in order to live. We live entirely, especially if we're writers, by the imposition of narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. If you're not familiar with her work, Joan Didion is an American writer of fiction and nonfiction. Her book, The White Album, is a collection of essays on this very musing. She was writing about California in the 60s and 70s, when the very fabric of modern American culture that had been constructed and codified in movies and TV began to fray. Didion was amidst a nervous breakdown. Her musings during this breakdown, quote, a time when I began to doubt the premises of all the stories I'd ever told myself, a common condition. I had this same revelation in my life. It started back in the fall quarter of 1998 when I walked into a 300-seat auditorium and took a chair near the front of the class. Yes, I'm the kid who used to sit in the front of the class in college. Please judge me. Go ahead. I can take it. I was cold, damp from the soggy sea air that hung like a shawl over the sleepy campus of the University of California in Santa Cruz. Perched on a hill, looking out over the jagged cliffs of the Pacific Ocean and backed up against a vast thicket of deeply haunting redwoods. It's the kind of place that looks beautiful during the day, and when the sun goes down, it's about one lightning clap away from absolutely terrifying. So, I'm in this classroom, soaking wet on a rainy night, and with some reluctance, I'm auditing, right, with the hopes of finding a major. I'd been rejected from the poetry department for reasons that were literally never explained to me, and I was simply told by my advisor to move on. Unwilling to find something applicable or rational like economics or biology, I chose Film 101, the film experience. I was introduced to Professor Harry Benshoff, and within the first five minutes of this class, I knew I was going to be a film major, a film theory major. So... Professor Benchoff was the first openly gay teacher I'd ever had, 
so I paid particular attention to what he was saying. Also, his lecture was helping me understand why I was choosing certain films and characters and storylines um, and making them like a really foundational way that I formulated and emulated aspects of my personality, my gender expression, my sexual and gender identity, and I don't know, even some shadows. He was showing me the origins of the stories and movies and TV shows that I told myself about myself through many different theories, some of which he'd worked on in his book, Monsters in the Closet, Homosexuality in the Horror Film. He was also teaching me how to read and dissect the content I was watching the way one is taught to read and dissect literature. It blew my mind. It totally blew my mind. So I started thinking, how did I walk into this class and within the first five minutes know I was going to change my entire identity, which up until that point, I had only thought of myself as a poet. I realized that the story I'd been telling myself was that for my work to exist, and also for me to exist, I needed to create things that were seeped in tone and symbolism and code, and that that was a technique that I had learned in high school when Deborah Clifford, my literature teacher, introduced me to Langston Hughes and Emily Dickinson and Audre Lorde and Walt Whitman, seminal queer poets who were allowed to exist so long as their work and sexuality was seeped in tone and symbolism and code. And of course, I was drawn to write this poetry because at 16, my heart was shattered. I was, you know, young and it was the first queer relationship that I had had and it ended in an almost Shakespearean way and I couldn't talk about it with anyone. I couldn't share it or keep a journal I didn't have any safe spaces or or places to process that pain. So I wrote poetry. I hid my pain in subtext, symbolism, and code. Film school was the first time I'd learned that I wasn't the only writer doing that. And poetry wasn't the only medium. It was a centuries-old tradition. And now that I knew what to look for, I could see much deeper into these other stories that were being told. So, now... That brings me to my finer point, how to understand Frankenstein. You must first look at the social conditions surrounding its release. How does a story develop its attachment style? Well, just like us, look at how it's nurtured. And so we travel back to the 1920s. It's important to go back to the 1920s because there were three things that happened that made really fertile ground that set the stage for this 1931 dark abyss of horror film releases. So number one, the government had instituted prohibition, which meant that people couldn't drink alcohol or sell alcohol or transport it across state lines, and that made criminals out of everyday citizens. Number two, as part of that prohibition, speakeasies became these small little safe spaces for marginalized communities to create intentional communities of their own, particularly those pesky homosexuals who aren't out there making babies. And then three, of course, the end of 1929, the depression hit and removed a great deal of faith that people had in capitalism and government, right? The government tries to control people. The response is that people become 
lawless and create these communities of their own in a very self-supporting and intentional way. And then the bottom drops out of the economy. No one has work. No one has money. No one has food. So if you're a system that requires cooperation and trust to function by selling people on the promise that they too can have a seat at the table if they work hard enough, then you need a way to package that promise and deliver it in mass and make it universally accepted and understood. It needs, it needs to take on a life of its own. So if I'm a storyteller and the behavior I'm trying to elicit with my story is for people to act more lawfully, condemn or reject any sexual practice outside of heterosexuality, and simply forget about the depression, it would make a lot of sense that a frightening story of a doctor who leaves his wife to toil away in the attic with his male servant friend, creating life outside the confines of heterosexual sex from dead man parts, would be the ticket. Well, meet Dr. Frankenstein. Based on the novel The Modern Prometheus by Mary Shelley, the 1931 masterpiece Frankenstein tells the tale of Dr. Henry Frankenstein, a young man engaged to Elizabeth, his beautiful fiancée, but who postpones his wedding because of his work. In school, he's become obsessed with the notion of creating human life, and he conspires with his assistant, Fritz, to defy God and the rules and morals of man, and creates life on his own. The results are, quote, the creature, a.k.a. Frankenstein's monster. You all know this story. Frankenstein is canonical, iconic. The heavy dramatic shadows, the overall gothic aesthetic set the tone for horror films for years to come. Dracula, the Wolfman, the Invisible Man, all of these are known as the universal monsters, the originals. Frankenstein, however, is a standout for one reason. Well, for two reasons. First, Frankenstein was directed by James Whale. James Whale was an openly gay director working at the time and his life and very mysterious death are chronicled in the film Gods and Monsters. By having a gay director, the story of Frankenstein changed. Not overtly, mind you, but in the subtext. On face value, sure, it's a cautionary tale. But of what exactly? It's about a boy who goes off to school and begins to spend all of his time with his one friend making life at night to defy God and man. That's the plot of so many films we've seen over and over, both um, rated and triple X rated, the subtext of this movie is very queer. And if you're unconvinced, let's look at Mary Shelley, who penned the book. The original title of the book, The Modern Prometheus, right? Prometheus was a titan and a creator of mortals. He divides Zeus by giving man fire, which was coded as science and technology, knowledge, civilization, right? She penned the book while visiting a villa in Switzerland rented by Lord Byron. You've all heard the famous story where during a storm, Mary Shelley and other writers all bundled in the villa and had a writing contest for who could tell the best ghost story? Well, Frankenstein was the result. What you probably haven't heard is that Mary Shelley, her husband Percy, and writer and author Lord Byron were a notorious throuple. Mary and Percy practiced polyamory. Percy was bisexual. Who's defying God now? In short, my position is this. There's a story being told in Frankenstein that when you have gay sex, the results should be horrifying. 
The monster in Frankenstein represents our fears and anxieties about the homosexual act itself embodied and personified. The book Monsters in the Closet goes to great lengths to address this codification in all the universal monsters. The Invisible Man, Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Dracula, and Frankenstein. Homos. All of them. <laughs> or at least they represent the tensions and anxieties of the existence of non-normative sexualities and identities. AKA the approved cultural response to homos, torches and pitchforks. Now remember, the circumstances back in 1931 that the people at Universal were trying to combat is that they needed to export a mass message that homosexuality and lawlessness were bad and trust in government and capitalist systems was good. Well, they had their new branding, the monster. If you're wondering how propaganda is made, public fear is stoked and behaviors are controlled, this is how. You isolate a fear, personify it in something symbolic, and normalize being afraid of it. But there is something strikingly different about Frankenstein as a monster. He's the only one of the universal monsters that has the capacity to express fear. Sure, he's scary, but he's also scared. Having a gay director in James Whale was, you know, he was very aware of the anxieties and tensions in the subtext of the film. So, he altered the way in which the monster is portrayed and cared for. He's sympathetic, not one to be feared, but more of a victim of his own circumstance. And that word, victim, says it all. The focus is placed on the difference of the monster. We fear the life it leads, its very existence, but also, we know it's not the monster's fault. He can't help what he is. He's just a monster. There are two remakes that I find important to mention because of the historical context for which they were released, and for how they continue this message of monster as victim, despite being entirely different formulations of the horror genre. The first is Kenneth Bragnaugh's remake, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. This film is a standout because it abandons the gothic stylization altogether and opts to tell the tale more like a period romantic drama that made a roaring comeback in the early 90s, which is important because the early 90s was during the height of the AIDS epidemic. Tensions around homosexuality were sky high and it was primarily because AIDS revealed one really specific and previously completely unspoken truth. There are a lot of men who engage in gay sex that do not identify as gay. And if AIDS was truly a gay disease, then only gay people should have been affected. But we found out that that wasn't the case at all. So naturally, Hollywood became fascinated with film sets in the English countryside where heterosexuality ran amok in the most delightful and accessible ways. People at affairs and, you know, drama, but it all played out very openly with nothing, no secrets, nothing to hide. Men were with women, many women, promiscuous and incorrigible in the most socially acceptable of ways. There were not throuples or polyamory. <laughs> no, no, no. Monogamy must be absolutely non-ethically non-monogamous in order to work. Men cheat, and isn't it also romantic? In Frankenstein, this point was doubled down by everything on screen appearing bright and well-lit. Even the laboratory where he creates the monster is bathed in too many candles for one man to light. This is the opposite of the typical horror genre cinematography where the shadows and lighting tell most of the story. Robert De Niro's Frankenstein has a skin tone. He's not soaked in shadows or desaturated like everything else in the movie. He's a warm sepia tone. And despite being literally pieced together from many parts of dead people, it's the same skin tone. 
no deviation whatsoever. You know, because every single person in England has the exact same skin tone. That's entirely a separate podcast, but it's worth noting. Also, as far as the story of Frankenstein, Kenneth Bradnaugh's remake takes, you know, Victor, changed from Henry, uh, finds that his desire for yearning to create human life is ground in the trauma of his mother's death. Instead of this odd, creepy fascination that seems to come out of nowhere, it becomes Oedipal, and therefore super heteronormative. It even goes so far as to smash the plots of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein together into one film, making heterosexuality the true marker of a man's desire. The creature simply wants a mate, a quote-unquote female mate, at that. I can almost say the exact same thing about 1974's film Young Frankenstein. And to be fair, Young Frankenstein is one of my all-time favorite movies. But you swap out the anxieties about the AIDS epidemic for the gay rights movement, the tone is different, and Young Frankenstein is a comedy horror, it's campy, but that fits with the time. At first, gay rights weren't taken seriously at all. It was thought of as a joke. Then people started getting sick and dying. And when straight people started to get sick and die, like Ryan White in Magic Johnson, people stopped laughing. In that breakdown, I hope I've elucidated two things. One, how films can work as a very effective form of propaganda because of the stories that they tell. Two, and how that propaganda can be recycled in different time periods with different tones and still work. For systems and control to be effective, they need ways to distribute their behavioral messages in mass. And that mass message must be so ingrained that it takes on a life of its own. So remember before I said that there are two things I love about Frankenstein? Well, the first point is this. It so clearly enunciates how anti-LGBT stories work in our society create attention, personify it, and create a sympathy for the victim of that personification. That cycle makes a sea of victims who have no one to point to for fault except the person, which then codifies our acceptance of them as benevolent. It's not his fault he's a monster. It's the ugly duckling. The second and more interesting part of this film to me is how badly we all miss the real point of Frankenstein. And I mean, we miss it badly. Another way to look at Frankenstein is by evaluating it as a modern critique of science. Henry Frankenstein is a really shitty doctor who does something morally reprehensible because of a god complex, and he pays no price for it. Philosophers like Aristotle and Socrates focus on human thought as the basis for existential meaning. I think, therefore I am. Psychologists look at behavior, and behavior, as we all know, is more often than not a reaction to outside influences. For a long time, science has generated the stories we've told of ourselves about human existence. Science guided by religion birthed the burgeoning psychoanalytic movement at the turn of the century that treated patients with shock treatment, conversion therapy, genital mutilation. The numerous studies published on symptoms of same-sex engagements, hysteria, masturbation, sexual anxiety, erectile dysfunction, and the like, currently, you know, created our understandings of these quote-unquote monsters. The fact is, it's their morally reprehensible methods that are truly monstrous. After all, the story is called Frankenstein. This surname takes me to my final and most important point. When I think about Frankenstein, I think about a parent. A really, really shitty parent. 
Now, if you haven't started watching the TV show Succession and Plan 2, stop listening to this podcast now. The next several minutes are spoiler alerts, not because I go into plot points, but I talk about this enough to give you an idea or color the show in a way that I wouldn't want to spoil it for you. I would first want you to watch it as it's presented and then maybe come back and listen to this. This is your now, an opportunity to press pause. The HBO smash hit Succession centers around the four adult children of Logan Roy, the bullish CEO of a multinational corporation, each vying for their own role in the family business at Waystar Royco. The problem is, Logan Roy has no intention of leaving. Most people who watch the show take turns shitting on the children, most notably Kendall, played by Jeremy Strong. Kendall is the second oldest son, but is really the only one of the four who seems capable and competent enough to run a company. That alone makes him the biggest target, and much of the show focuses on how he tries to bring in his siblings to rise up against their tyrannical dad, and how that effort fails over and over again because the other kids are simply afraid. Now let's be clear about this point that no one seems to think about whenever they talk about succession. Logan Roy is a fucking terrible businessman. He is not smart, he's not creative, he's not thoughtful or strategic. It's made very clear that he has maintained his position through payoffs, intimidation, cheating, lying, and stealing. That, that is not success. People who lead do so with vision that extends far beyond their lifetime to generations. Great leaders have a plan A, B, C, D through Z because they are prepared for any inevitability. They train their people because if you don't have a support system that can think for itself, your business dies with you. Logan Roy is Dr. Frankenstein. He created monsters, then shunned their existence, turned the world against them, all in the name of protecting his own lunacy and defiance of morality. He will never name a successor to his business because I believe, and if the writers are true to the character they've written, I think this will be true, Logan Roy would rather watch the company be burned to the ground with him when he dies than see anyone succeed him. Because why? If someone succeeds him, it means someone could succeed him. They would see his cracks, his flaws, his mistakes, his weakness. We will watch his laboratory burn and his monsters with him and the entire Roy family die with him because that's what he wants. He is not successful. He's rich. And that's not the same thing. Despite the stories we've been told about CEOs and billionaires for as long as we have been alive, success and rich are not the same thing. Remember, Mary Shelley's alternate title for Frankenstein was the modern Prometheus. Logan Roy is often touted as a titan of his industry, and it's fairly clear that if he ever did meet God, he would absolutely tell him to fuck off and still fire knowledge in the entire kingdom of heaven. No one is rooting for Logan, but also no one's stopping him or judging him either. They look at his kids and judge them, but no one ever casts a stone at him. What we watch on television and the stories we tell or don't tell have lasting impact on us and the world around us. And if you don't believe me, I have two words for you. Fred Trump, the father of Donald. Mary Trump wrote an incredible book called Too Much, Never Enough. She's the daughter of the oldest Trump child, Fred Trump Jr., 
who was the first in line to inherit his father's company. He bears a striking resemblance to Connor Roy, actually. Unlike his siblings, Fred didn't want that responsibility because he knew it was literally attaching strings to his life that his father could pull at any time. But what he didn't realize is that he was born with those strings already attached. In her book, Mary paints a scathing truth about the Trump family that no one else ever considers. To understand Donald Trump, you really need to look at his father, Fred. Fred had a plan. He was going to create an empire based on lying, cheating, and stealing. That's it. That was his plan. He had kids, but he didn't care to nurture them at all. In fact, he was emotionally and psychologically abusive, rejecting their very existence when it was not useful to him, but never quite letting them get too far from his control. His children, Donald Trump included, are simply a byproduct of a bad businessman who defied government rule, ethics, and morality in the name of making money. In fact, Mary Trump goes to great lengths to describe how Fred Trump designed and created a monster out of Donald Trump as a distraction for the media so that he could continue operating nefariously behind the scenes. Donald had two key qualities that really encouraged this. His penchant for causing a scene that made Page Six focus on his antics, and two, his desperate need to please his father. The crueler Donald was to the other children, the more money and attention Fred bestowed on him. Not love, mind you, just focus. If you watch the show, there's one character that really stands out as being very similar. Sadly, it's a very well-liked character whose sarcastic comebacks are more celebrated the crueler they become. Yes, you guessed it, I'm talking about Roman. Donald Trump is an illusion created by his father. Like the Wizard of Oz, he is a shitty businessman behind the curtain, and yet, because of the stories we tell ourselves about our country, about our celebrities, about CEOs and the rich, we all saw that illusion become our president. And why? Because people really like it when someone is funny and cruel. So as not as you know, as long as they're not laughing at them, it's fine. He's a monster, but he's their kind of sympathetic monster. That's how deep and dangerous the stories we tell can go. Now, if I've ruined succession for you, don't stop listening. Here's my challenge. Go find stories that you think you know back and forth and start to really question the truth behind them. For example, if you love succession, go back and rewatch it and ask yourself one question. If you saw Logan Roy as a bad businessman, how would that change the story arc of Kendall, Siobhan, Roman, and yes, even Connor? How would it change your view of both the political and financial characters they interact with, especially those who heavily favor Logan? Would it change the tone? Would it change who you're rooting for? I'd love to hear what you find. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Stories We Tell, a podcast about the way we read and understand the stories behind movies and TV shows. You can find the show on Spotify and iTunes. New episodes come out Thursdays. Like and follow so you get notified as soon as new content is posted. There may be some bonus surprises dropped along the way to keep you thinking about what you're seeing. Thank you for listening to The Stories We Tell. This is Casey Bacamini saying, please, watch carefully. (laughs) 